0: You know, I was thinking, I knew that Youth Sunday was coming up on November 1, and for some reason, I don't know how I miscalculated, but, but I thought I had this week and next week before Youth Sunday, and that's not true because next week is Youth Sunday. So the last message of the Geography of Grace series, which I thought was going to be next Sunday, isn't because it's Youth Sunday, so I guess I'll come back on November 8th then yeah. to do that message, right? A little miscalculation of, um, of dates, but that's no problem. And although I can't be here physically next Sunday, I, 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 will, I will be watching that Youth Sunday. Uh, I'll, I'll be watching the online uh, uh, service for that, because I can't wait to see what, what you guys do. I had the chance to meet with the youth group last Sunday night, and you guys got an amazing group of young people in this church. I I'm a youth pastor at heart. I kept saying, if I could just be a youth pastor my whole life, that's what I'd love to do. And I argued with God because that's what I wanted to do. And, and some people get that privilege. I, just, I wasn't one of those blessed to do it directly. I, I train a lot of youth workers now all over the world that are doing youth ministry. So when I get a chance to be with some young people, I grab it. And boy, what a gift last week to just sit with your youth and to hear their hearts, their maturity, their questions, um, the way they're engaging, the reality of what you're involved in right now, of navigating as a church, and I, I couldn't have been more blessed by, by that time with them. So um, you can be proud of, of what God is doing in them and, um, and uh, the work there. It's just great. Hey, last, um, last weekend we had the chance to stay at the sprawling Collins Estate. Um, <laughs> Which uh, some of you knew about, and um, I have two things to confess from last weekend. We stole something. <laughs> so somehow that Tupperware container got back to our house. We didn't do it purposely, but but there's the return of the Tupperware container. And the other thing, the other thing that I have to confess is um, I found. Jeff's stash of double-stuffed Orioles. <laughs> and I didn't even tell my wife or daughter that I found it. That's the real confession. And I ate way more than I should have. I love double-stuffed Orioles, and I hadn't had them in so long, and I found them in a cabinet underneath another, and I'm like, oh my. So I ask for your forgiveness. <laughs> Man, those were good. I might have to replace them, but we'll we'll see about how that goes. I'll see if the Lord convicts me. (laughs) Or if I can just receive the extension of grace from from Jim. (laughs) And for us baseball fans, did you see that game last night? If you don't care about baseball, just give us one second to revel because that will go down in history as one of the best World Series games in the history of the World Series. It was absolutely phenomenal. And the Rays pulled out the bottom of the ninth inning and won. Um, so it was an incredible game. The series is now at 2-2. And um, I didn't grow up here, but I'm reveling in my hometown team right now in the World Series. So that was such a gift to be part of. Well, I uh, it was mentioned that I have like a, like a lot today. And that's kind of true. Sorry. Um, I see my clock, and I'm going to honor that. But... Last week, I mentioned to you for, uh, for prayer by way of, you know, we've been looking at these different parts of the world outside of the U.S. just for a moment and then joining in prayer with Beirut and Manila and Port-au-Prince and Guatemala City and Delhi and India and women who have been disappearing during the quarantines in different places of Latin America and the Dominican Republic and last week, Nairobi, Kenya. And I said, pray for me because this last Sunday, I said, Thursday and Friday of this week, the ones that just passed, I was part of a consultation set by our hub in South Africa. It was a consultation on the theme of, do we see her? And I didn't know what to expect. I mean, COVID has shut down so many things, the global pandemic, and has created such loss. But I cannot tell you some of the... I'm amazed at the resiliency and the way the Holy Spirit, like Genesis 1-2, right? The first image of God in all of Scripture is the Holy Spirit dancing in chaos. Saying, come dance with me here. Right, hovering, hovering, that words only used one other time in the Old Testament of a mother hen, covering, covering its chicks. There's an intimacy there. The intimate dance of the Holy Spirit in the midst of chaos. In the midst of this chaos, the Holy Spirit is dancing. And H.W. Auden said, I know one thing and one thing only, that where grace dances, I too should dance. And so Thursday and Friday, I get a chance to dance over Zoom with hundreds of people all over the world. Um, and in fact, this is, this is a, so we did Thursday um, this, this thing, and the, the Africans on the continent of Africa did all our night. We slept during the night. They were alive and well because of the time zone change. And then at 8 in the morning, Pacific, 11 in the morning, Eastern, we got together as the Americas, South, Central, and North America. And we began to follow the lead they had set for us the night we were sleeping during the time they were meeting. We got up and then followed track with the table they set. And after the first day, they sent me these slides so I could use them on the morning of the second day. So, so these are the, the groups that were involved in the consultation from South Africa, right? So Vittoria and Johannesburg. And just, I don't have time to tell you the story behind all these pictures, but here's the folks engaging in South Africa around the consultation, around the themes, around, and I'm gonna tell you the theme in just a second, as they sat there and engaged and made timelines um, of, of what's been happening during the year 2020. This consultation's happened every other year for 26 years. It happens in August. I've physically been there twice. This year in August, it was supposed to have happened again, and of course, it got shut down because of COVID and no one could show up in South Africa in August, so they, instead of not having the consultation, opened it up to the entire world and said, we're not gonna shut down talking about what God wants us to talk about, we're gonna open it up to the whole world. So look at what happens. so this is South Africa. Look at the pictures, the folks all over South Africa, and then Bloemfontein and Durban, other cities in South Africa. Here they are meeting, look at the social distancing within that congregation there as they met together over Zoom calls, over timelines. And then the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape, also in South Africa. Here's folks pictured there uh, on the Eastern and Western Capes of South Africa. And then we got uh, Southern Africa in, in Zambia, Mozambique, and Malawi, uh, Lusaka, Lilongwe, Maputo. I can't even say those words, right? These are the cities. And look at the folks engaging and connecting there. And then East Africa and Uganda, Rwanda, Kenya. And, and, and Kenya, they didn't get very many pictures from those folks. They were too busy, right? But they got a couple, a couple pictures. Um, of folks. And then in um, Uganda, in Rwanda, more pictures of folks engaging all over Africa in the consultation, having the same conversation. Then West Africa, in Nigeria and Ghana, um, Suhum, Ashanti region in Ghana, here's folks that are engaging in the conversation with computers in remote villages, all engaged and connected with one another. Um, and then in, in, in Nigeria, well, in Nigeria, they're having huge riots right now in Nigeria. So they weren't able to get any pictures. But even in the midst of that devastation, folks still gathered in Nigeria to be part of the conversations. And then in Douala and in uh, Abidjan, I can't say anything in French, so I'm not even going to try, right? But here, here's the folks engaging there in French. And look at, look at where they had as a meeting room to participate in a global conversation. Folks in those kind of communities engaging and connecting with one another. And then worldwide, everywhere else in the world, we gathered from South Africa, I mean from South America and Central America and North America, um, cities from all over the Americas for the Americas consultation, including folks from Manila, um, from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, from Santo Domingo, um, and and we all gathered and had these two days of consultations. I wanted to just share with you this little video um, both as a way of allowing you into a tiny piece of what this experience was like, also to kind of recap our sermon so far in Geography of Grace. Because you're going to hear these two women in Africa who are part of the keynote addresses of this conference talking about the Hagar story. You know that story, don't you? Right? And talking about Luke 7.44 where was the theme verse for this consultation. Listen, it says this, um, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And Simon, you never even saw her. And so the theme for this conference is, Do you see her? And hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the world engaged. And here's, what, here, here's a clip of the video of the opening keynote address of this time uh, with folks in Africa. Oh, go it again.
1: And here we are. Do we see her? Do we ask that question? Do we see those people who are meant to be part of the city, who want to be part of the city, who've been invited to be part of the city, and yet they cannot be? Do we see her? Can we hear her? It's amazing that the story of Ishmael, the name Ishmael says that God hears. So God hears Ishmael and he sees Hagar. And Hagar says, you are God who sees me. She has the the courage and the ability to name God because not is God seeing the story when she mistreats Sarai, but God sees the story before this and he sees the story afterwards. And so what is it that we see? We see the city. Thank you.
2: Do you see her? asked the teacher. She has been relegated to your periphery, for the focus of your gaze falls only on those you hold with praise. Her frantic, lavish giving has made the worship of my name resound within the heavenlies, though the sound is lost to your own ears. She washes, works, slaves away on the fringes of your margins, her lovesome labours, though disregarded, oil the very fabric of our slowly grinding reality. She stokes our fires, cooks our food, raises our children, endures our beatings. She has never stopped to cover us with the kisses of her misunderstood and blind mouth. To see her will be to enter the eternal Shalom where she and I and thou are beheld
1: Hostile city built on stolen land with stolen hands. How dare you label attempts to create sanctuary as illegal? Homemaking is revolutionary in the system born of displacement. Wholeness is revolutionary in the system invested in dislocation. Keep fighting to make home. Keep fighting to be whole. It doesn't seem possible, but perhaps a day will come when home and wholeness are no longer forcibly removed. A day where they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. That reality of which the prophet Isaiah long since dreamed. But in the meantime, do not forget. Your very breath is resistance. Your very presence is protest. In this world telling you your life does not matter, the defiant drumbeat of your heart is bravery. Your very being is courageous. So whatever they say, breathe the air like it was yours. Take up space like it was 1651. If you have the strength, go on and build. And if, when they have done their worst, You still have strength. If you still have breath, build again.
3: I'm Coletta Roberts, a daughter of many nations. I was born in the land of the people of the Sweet Pea, also known as Southern California. And it's my privilege to live in the land of my greatest lesson, South Africa, for the past 10 years. And it's a joy to be with you and journey together as we sit in our theme, Do You See Her? Do you see her as a question the Lord's been asking his people throughout time. So often in scripture, we see the people of God crying out to him, asking why he's not healed their land and answered their prayers. Often the reply comes, I will when you start taking care of those on the margins, the foreigners in your land, women. In short, when you take care of her, I'll hear your prayers and heal your land. Even Israel, God's chosen people, found themselves teetering.
0: Okay. The idea was for that to fade out and and, and to lead you to say, I want to see more of what she's saying and I'd be happy to share the link with you. Um, But that's just a piece, just just a little piece of, of what the open plenary address was for this worldwide global connection of folks in cities all over the world engaging together around the theme, Do We See Her? What they were doing was exploring the geography of grace. And they did it from the context of Africa, particularly South Africa, and invited the world to come along for the ride. It was an incredible, incredible gift. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit's dancing in the midst of what seems so chaotic in so many ways. And yet, out of that is birthing new life and new relationships and new opportunities in the midst of all of it. And that was part of the joy of, of being part of um, that experience this week. So, just wanted to let you in uh, into it uh, in, a, in a tiny way. So, We're going to look this morning at um, the second to last passage in John 21, actually starting in Mark 1, called Fishing in Galilee, the Call of Grace. We've had a variety of guides that have led us in this journey during the course of this experience, and it's no mistake that the last two guides are Jesus and Jesus. Right? So what does Jesus have to say uh, in relationship to The call, the calling of grace. Um, That's what I want to look at with you this morning. The question is, so where does all this focus on grace lead us? What's the call? What's the shape of the call of what does all of this mean? So what, after however many weeks that... I don't even, I can't keep track of it. How, a lot of weeks of looking at grace from a variety of different lenses, from a variety of different guides and, and guideposts. So what does all of it mean in the practical reality of how we're called to live our lives? And to be able to take a look into that, focus on grace, where does that call us? What is the vocational reality of what all this means for us? Um, I, I, I wanna start in Mark chapter one to set the context for John 21 where we're going to spend our time. We're going to to take a look at a particular place, a place called Galilee. And we're going to take a look at a particular interaction of Jesus with a guy named Peter. To get to John 21, we got to see where it all started. So we're going to look at the first ever encounter between Jesus and Peter. Peter. And then we're going to bookend it with the last encounter on this earth between Jesus and Peter. And we're going to see what the calling of grace is for us in respect to this place called Galilee. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. You can turn there or just listen. It says here, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee, remember that because That's where Jesus first met Peter, and it's no mistake that that's where he last talked to Peter, the beginning and the end of their interaction. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen, and that's what fishermen do. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little bit further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them too. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they too followed Jesus. So we read here in Mark of these four fishermen that Jesus encounters while strolling along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. why, Why these particular men? What leads Jesus to issue them his first call to a life of great adventure following him? For if the first thing Jesus does after his formal commission into ministry is seek companions for that journey, we'd assume that he wouldn't be flippant in his choice of such companions, wouldn't we? He wouldn't be flippant in that, but yet in a conversation that takes less than a minute, get this, he swoops up one-third of his final group of twelve disciples. So what about these particular four fishermen has captured the imagination of Jesus? Or perhaps a more appropriate question than what does Jesus see in them would be what in the world do they see in Jesus? That they would leave their vocational trade, their livelihood immediately and follow this guy named Jesus. What what do they see that compels them to do that? Should Should they not at least consult with their family and their friends? Should they not have a talk with their wife for heaven's sakes? before embarking on a life-changing adventure or perhaps a designated period of discernment maybe regarding the possibility of such a radical life change or or maybe they should have discussed it with a spiritual director or at least, at least taken time to pray about it. You You know that statement you make to someone that asks you to do something and you're like, I ain't doing that for nothing. And your answer is, well, let me pray about it. So that then you can go and say no and blame God. You you know you've done that, right? I'll, I'll pray about it. You've already said in your mind you are not doing that, right? But you will pray about it. And then you can say no and you have God's authority in your no, right? Shouldn't they have at least said they'll pray about it? But our text tells us that these four at once left their nets and followed him. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm left somewhat confused as well as inspired by their response to immediately, and perhaps irresponsibly even, leave net vocation and family to follow this guy named Jesus. And you might think, okay, this is a good passage for a missionary to preach, right? Who, who heard the call of Jesus with his family back in 2000-whatever-it-was, and um, 2000 three, I guess it was, and and my wife and our kids, we heard God's call, and we left everything in Philadelphia. Uh, we sold everything that wouldn't fit into four, no, eight suitcases, because back then, you could take a 70-pound suitcase per person. So we took 70 pounds in four, we had four people, we took eight suitcases, and sold everything else, and thought, we're just going to go for about a year or two um, to Guatemala, maybe three, um, and then and then we'll, you know, figure out what's next. And we left, we left our nets on the seashore and, and went to go serve on the mission field in Guatemala. And you might think, well, that's great. And so if I don't have that same calling, I'm just not quite as good a Christian as Joel and his wife were and their family. Or I'm, not, I'm just not, if I was really in tune with Jesus, I would leave my nets and leave everything that I know is comfort and I would just go to some place in Africa and serve Jesus there. And oftentimes, this is how this passage gets preached. This is how it gets offered up as a challenge to God's people. To, to leave everything you know and go someplace else. And some of you have had or will get a call like that. Yes. But it's the vast minority of followers of Jesus that ever get a call like that. So, so perhaps there is something in what these Nets represent for us that might leave us a little bit of a surprising twist this morning when we look at it in the backdrop of this scandalous picture of God's grace. I've talked before about these vision trips that we had to Guatemala for years. We used to call them mission trips. Folks would come and do a short-term mission trip, but then we realized that folks were doing that and considering that their mission for the year they take a trip, do mission, go back, and then once a week, uh, once a year, they'd go back and do mission again. Put on Facebook, you know, pictures on Facebook, and, and maybe do a presentation at their church. And then they could go on with regular life again, and then next year, we'll go on mission again. We realized that people were turning mission into a trip, which it was never meant to be a trip. Mission is a lifestyle, right? It's to, and I think I mentioned this idea before, that mission to the Christian is like water is to the fish. It's where we're to live, move, and have our being. Right? And so we began to call these trips vision trips. And a few years ago, we did one with fathers and sons. Oh. Fathers and sons came on this trip. And one of the young men was named Mitchell. He was 15, I think, at the time. And we did a whole variety of things. And at one point, we took them to this couple that lives in this slum of Guatemala City. They moved there purposely and bought a house big enough that it had a little space in the back where they could invite all the children of the slum into, into, for Bible studies. In, 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 the, in the room of their house, in the back. And their name's Ajeo and Irma Perez. They're some of my absolute heroes of this world. And we went there with the fathers and sons so we could be inspired by the vision and the commitment of Ajeo and Irma and the way they were serving their community in La Esperanza, uh, the hope it's called in, in Spanish. We went there and... Did the thing with the kids and the Bible study and did all this stuff, and it was great. And then towards the end, uh, I, I, I was up front and I was going to kind of, you know, close things down. And I look at the kids, there's probably 60, 70 of them from the ages of five to maybe 12, um, little, just, just jam packed in this little tiny room sitting on top of each other. And I, and I just grabbed the first kid that I could next to me because I thought, well, I'm going to create a conversation between a North American and these Guatemalan kids. So I said, Hey, Mitchell, come on over here, poor kid, right? I just grabbed him and I put him in front. And I said to the kids, this is Mitchell, and he's from a place called Seattle, and it's a big city there in the corner of the United States, and he's here with his dad and his brother to experience Guatemala. I bet some of you have questions for him, but let me, let me see what Mitchell would like to say to you. And so I asked Mitchell a couple questions, and I translated his answers, and I thought I was priming this thing up for this great conversation. So then it came time to ask the kids, so what questions do you have for Mitchell? And it was dead silent. So like, put smiles on their faces, but nobody, I thought, come on, someone's going to ask a question about something, like what food do you like, right? Or what sports do you play, or something like that, but no one said anything. So I was, I was fishing for something, and I looked out at the crowd, and I saw this one sweetheart little girl that's just captured my heart since there, that community, her name was Graciela. And I, and I looked out, and I Graciela was about six or seven at the time, and I said, Graciela, seguramente tú tienes una pregunta para Mitchell. For sure you have a question for Mitchell. ¿Qué pregunta tienes para él? What question do you have for him? And she just got quiet, a little smile on her face. And without batting an eye, she said, so beautifully, she said, Yo no tengo pregunta para él, pero quiero que él... Sabe, quisiera que él sepa que Dios le ama y nosotros le amamos
2: también.
0: For you who understand Spanish, was that beautiful or what? A seven-year-old telling this fifteen-year-old white kid from Seattle, "I don't have a question for you," he said. She said, "But I want Mitchell to know that God loves him and that we love him too." Do you know what that did to that 15-year-old kid who had left Galilee? He had left his home. He had left everything he understood to go on a trip so he could be a blessing to little brown kids in a country he'd never been before in a language he couldn't speak. And he went there to be a blessing to them, and what he received was a vocational calling from a 7-year-old missionary in Guatemala saying, God loves you, and so do we. Go live your life in the reality of that love. In Galilee where you came from. I'll never forget the way that script was flipped for for Mitchell that Galilean shape of his own life he was invited to live into as one loved by the father and by kids in Guatemala he therefore could go into a vocational calling of loving his own Galilee in the city of Seattle. This first ever encounter between Jesus and Peter occurs in the Galilee where Peter had grown up. The very place that Jesus had met him, this very first time, where Peter had spent his entire life. And in the final Gospel of John, in the last encounter between Peter and and Jesus once again, their final encounter goes right back to where it all began in the place called Galilee. Now, this is what's so incredibly significant, connecting this first chapter of Mark, of of Jesus' first call to his first disciples, and then the conclusion of his time on earth with those same disciples. John 21 is the last chapter, right, in the book of John. And John could have ended his gospel in whatever way he chose to, but he does so with a return to Galilee and narrating three stories about the relationship of Jesus with Peter. Now, the resurrection has just occurred, and Jesus has rapidly appeared to Mary Magdalene, then to the disciples in the locked room, then about a week later to Doubting Thomas, who wasn't there the first time, and then a week or so later again, the fourth time in Galilee. And if you remember in the resurrection narrative, when Mary experiences the resurrected Jesus, he says to her this little comment that just escapes us so often. She says, tell the disciples to go to Galilee, for they will see me there. That's why they went back after that third sighting of Jesus. They went back to where Jesus told them to go, back to Galilee. So why Galilee and why Peter, what can we learn about the call to mission and the leaving of nets? What can we learn? For, for some, that means, like I already mentioned, the leaving of nets and going off to some foreign place outside somewhere else in the rest of the world. It can mean that. But for so many of us, it means something very distinct and, 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 and different in the, in, in the implications of what leaving nets mean. I, I don't know about you all, but I've been so amazed by the kind of hero's welcome that medical professionals have been um, receiving in, in the midst of the work they've done in the hospitals. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, one of your own left Florida to go up to Minnesota to, to do medical work in the state where the COVID crisis is really growing significantly. And she, as a nurse, went up there to serve people up there in the cold tundra of Minnesota, She she left her her comfort of her own, quote, net here of comfort in southwest Florida, and she went up to give her gift, her vocational calling to people in desperate need of it. What, What an example of leaving nets and stepping out to follow Jesus, right? There are nurses that do that. But there are regular heroes, and I'm telling you, so often people look at, missionaries or pastors, and they say, oh man, what a gift, or, or what an amazing relationship they must have with Jesus, and we, we lift up certain people and, and, and say they're extra special in some way, shape, or form, but I can tell you as a missionary for six, 15 years of my life in Guatemala, 13 years prior to that in Philadelphia, and still a full-time support-raising missionary today, I can tell you my heroes of the faith are people who have nine to five jobs and do that job on a daily basis for the glory of God. That, to me, is remarkable. Sometimes I figure I'm a missionary or a pastor because it's an excuse. It makes it easy for me to have a role where I'm supposed to pray or I'm supposed to preach. It's the title that gives me comfort, and I don't have to really walk my talk in certain contexts because I have the title. It's just assumed that I always do it, right? And, and, and sometimes I feel like, man, how would I go about living, living faithfully in a, in a context where I don't have my picture on people's refrigerators all over the country praying for us? What would that look like? What would it look like to, to step into this calling by grace and what are the particular nets here that might have a whole lot more relevance to us that we're being asked to leave? So there's three. Here's the first one. John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Right where it all began, here he is again. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Jesus called four initially, now there are seven back in Galilee. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, do you just get the irony of this? Think for a second, what did Peter and the disciples just go through? Think of all they saw in Jerusalem. Think of the experience of watching this leader they've given their lives to, crucified on a cross. He died there. They saw him die. And then three days later, he's, they're told by the women that he's been raised from the dead, and then while they're in a room with a locked door, Jesus walks right through it. And then he comes back again because one of them missed it when he was there, and that person was doubting that Jesus had done it. So Jesus comes back again right through the door, and he shows himself and his wounds to Thomas. Peter, they had just experienced all of this. They're told to go back to Galilee, so, so they do. And what does Peter do? He, he wants to go fishing. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to go fishing. Why in the world would he want to go out to fish? Shouldn't they be packing for a mission trip to save the world? Shouldn't they be getting their suitcases all filled up? Shouldn't they be getting their passports updated? I mean, they got a world to conquistar in the name of Jesus. They got to get out there and get going. But Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. After three years immersed in the company of Jesus, the drama of all of those years, the adrenaline of the resurrection week, with all of it coming to a personal focus on Jesus, breathing his own spirit into them, and ordaining them to continue his words and his acts, what are they going back to Galilee to do? <laughs> to go fishing. Now, I think it was my second anniversary. Not sure exactly. But some of us men, wife, you might have a husband like this, so grant him grace, please. I have a problem. I'm very sentimental on things. Um, and one of those things I'm very sentimental with are T-shirts. Because they have memories. Oh, I got, I got a witness, huh? So, so I got a closet full of teachers, and every one of them has a story. No, I don't wear them, but I, I love them. I mean, they got stories. So, so look at this one. This is, I think, on our second anniversary in Mackinac Island up in Michigan. And it says here, Jesus said, go fishing. He said nothing about fixing the sink, mowing the lawn, walking the dog, <laughs> painting the house, um, I can't read it. Uh, Washing the dishes, uh, cleaning the garage, or weeding the garden. He simply said, Go fishing. Right? So I'm like, honey, I'm just doing what Jesus tells me to do. Right? (laughs) That's what what Peter, Peter's caught up in this trap. He's, he's, He's just going fishing. What in the world is going on? But there's something about the understanding of going back to Galilee, the place they knew, the place where they had grown up. And what do they grab a hold of? The thing they've always done. What they knew to do, they did. They weren't on some exotic, brand new escapade of some crazy... They were asked to live in to the reality of their daily life and to pay attention. The first net that Peter's being invited to let go of that I think has huge relevance for us today is the net of inattentiveness to the here and to the now. I don't know about you, but I'm always living in the past or in the future. I don't know how to occupy the present very well. Praise God, my wife does. She's a prophet to me on occupying the present because I'm always living in yesterday's manna, or in tomorrow's promise. And I miss what's happening right in front of me. I miss the opportunities in my own Galilee of existence in the day-to-day reality of my life. And I was walking the dog this morning, my daughter's dog, and I, and I remembered this clip from, from, <laughs> from The Incredibles. <laughs> and, I, and I said to Matt, I said, can you like load this up? because this was like at nine this morning, right? And, and, and Matt did it again, right? Um, so where is it, Matt? OK, so watch this clip for just a second about Mr. Incredible, otherwise known as Bob. It was the Bobness of his life he refused to want to engage, because he was always dreaming about the Mr. Incredible part. And look at what happens. And his own family that's it
2: hey, hey, hey. Oh. Oh.
0: How many times have you wives said to your husband, it's time to engage, right? And don't think it's just you wives, right? We, Us men have a few things that we could encourage you to engage as well, right? The point is, right in front of you is something to be had in the Galilee of your own life. Look at your wife. Look at your kids. Look at what's right in front of you. But all you can do is dream about being Mr. Incredible or in, 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 instead of occupying the bobness of your own life. See, there's one of the serious misunderstandings that, that sometimes develops among people like us who worship and serve together in Christian congregations is that there is a spiritual world of uh, Mr. Incredible existence quite different from the ordinary Bob world in which we make a living, raise our children, etc. And so it's a struggle to keep our minds on God when we have taxes and diapers demanding our attention. And there's that net of inattentiveness, leaving it aside in order to fully lean into following Jesus into the Galilee of our Monday morning, of our Tuesday, of our Wednesday, of our Thursday. So Peter led his friends out of the holy city of Jerusalem the religious center, the holy, sacred place where all they thought would happen was supposed to happen, but it didn't, and so they went back to the country they grew up in, their Galilee, their home and their workplace. And there seems to be an instinct here for the local and for the ordinary, a sense that if they were going to assimilate and live this resurrection life, the life after the resurrection of Jesus, they had to start out in the place they knew best and do the work that they knew best. That's why these seven former fishermen went out fishing that night. They needed an immersion into ordinariness. They needed to grasp the bobness of their worlds instead of trying to imagine and daydream about the Mr. Incredible stuff. They plunged into their old routines, the familiar workplace of sea and fishing boats and nets in order to fully experience and occupy the shape of the missional call of their own lives. I mentioned walking the dog this morning. I was walking, it's my, dog's, my daughter's dog named Ayla, um, and we were walking uh, our usual route, and then around the corner came a neighbor named Martha, who had this big kind of white pit bull dog next to her. And that wouldn't mean much unless you know who Martha is and why she does that. Because the woman across the street from us named Kathy, her husband passed away about six months ago. He was the one that took care of the dog, and she has one artificial leg, and that dog is too strong. She can't walk that dog because of her leg. It's too powerful for her. So what does Martha do right down the street every single morning and every single afternoon? She comes over to Kathy's house, knocks on the door to take that white dog for a walk. That's embracing her Galilee. That's a missional commitment to loving someone right in front of you. How often do we miss those opportunities? Because we're distracted about the incredible stuff. <laughs> Listen to this poem by Mary Oliver. I love, I love the poetry of Mary Oliver. Listen to this. It's called Messenger. She says, my work is loving the world. Here are the sunflowers. They're the hummingbird. Equal seekers of sweetness. Hear the, quickening and the, hear the quickening yeast. There are the blue plumes. Hear the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Get this, listen. Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished." When's the last time you got up and just stood still and was astonished by the goodness and the grace of Almighty God? And allowing that to be what catapults you into the missional opportunities of each day in front of you. There's a a farmer, a dairy farmer named Johnny Westra, and I was in Iowa, and he had us come and cover his silage pile. Anyone know what a silage pile is? Okay. I never understood a silage pile. But in the fall, they get all the, 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 the hay and stuff for the, for the dairy cows, and they put this huge pile, and they got to cover it with tarps, with tires on top of the tarps to keep them from blowing away. And it's a community thing. The whole community comes out to, to cover the silage piles. Um, they can bless one another because it's got to get covered before the snow comes. I, there's a whole world I never knew existed, northwest corner of Iowa. And we were there covering the silage pile. And when it got done, Johnny said, hey, I want to give your family a little tour of my dairy. And so we walked around, and my daughter was young, and she just loves, loves animals. And I remember walking around, and she was taking us in, in a different spot, and we got to the room where the calves were, the, the baby calves. Um, and they could hardly stand. They were waddling there in the room, and, and, they, and, and, and they had to get help, you know, and they were there for a while until they got sold to wherever they went. I don't understand the whole business. But but he was walking around and, and sharing us all about his dairy, and he was doing it with, like, passion and excitement, and he was, like, jumping out of his plastic boots that he worked with because he was just he couldn't just wait to tell us about the next thing about the dairy. And he got toward the end and he said this in front of our family and a few others that were along for the ride. He said, you know, this has been great for me to give you a tour of the dairy. And he says, I'm just like Pastor Joel and his family. The difference is, they do what they do in Guatemala because we are Guatemala missionaries. And, and I do it here in, in, in the northwest corner of Iowa. And I do what I do for the glory of God, and I love it. I can't wait to get up each morning and to glorify God by the opportunity to do the work he's placed before me. I'm just like Pastor Joel and his wife because they do it there, and I do it here, and I love it, he said. I'll never forget the radiancy. He just called me the other day. I was driving somewhere. and I go, Joel, this is Johnny. How you doing, man? I can't wait to see you again. And he never has a phone call that he doesn't end with. Can I pray for you, brother? And then we pray together over the phone. Just the missional reality of standing still and being astonished, leaving the net of inattentiveness, embracing what is right in front of us in the Galilee of our own lives each and every day. What a gift. Now, there's two other nets. I'm going to go through these much faster. Trust me. But this is hard. The second net is leaving the net of guilt, leaving the net of shame, and leaving the net of unforgiveness. I didn't plan this series of sermons on the geography of grace, knowing what you as a church were going through. When I was asked, I had no idea. And what's been amazing to me, is, it always is with God, the way He just orchestrates things. So as I was working on this last night, I thought, God, what a gift for Relevance Community. What's going to happen to Peter right now with this net? What a gift in the midst of what they're experiencing right now as a congregation. Okay. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. "You, You know that I love you. Jesus, uh, I love you. Jesus said, then feed my lambs. Again, Peter, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said, this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now Peter is not a very promising leader for people like us, right, who need someone to step out and tell us how to follow Jesus, to provide insight and wisdom in being a Christian. Mostly, what Peter does and says in relationship to Jesus is wrong, dead wrong. He was wrong at Caesarea Philippi when, after confessing Jesus as Messiah, he tried to inhibit him from going to Jerusalem. He was wrong in the Mount of Transfiguration, trying to turn the glory of God into a tacky tourist attraction. He was, he was wrong when it came to foot washing because he tried to distance himself from the humility of Jesus. He was wrong at Gethsemane when he cut off Malchus' ear, thinking he could serve Jesus through violence. He was wrong, he was wrong, he was wrong. And here in Galilee, Jesus doesn't deny his wrongness. He does something absolutely beautiful. Remember the biggest hole Peter ever, ever dug for himself was on the night that Jesus was crucified because Jesus said, you will betray me three times. No, no, not I, not I, not I. And before the cock crowed three times, you all know the story. Peter denied Jesus. And what does Jesus do here in his last encounter with Peter? Imagine, imagine the, the fear, or the trembling that Peter must be experiencing. Jesus says, I'm going to ask you to leave the net of your consideration of your own unworthiness. You denied me three times, Peter. I will now reinstate you three times. And remember, where it happened, where did Peter deny Jesus three times? Outside of the court of Caiaphas, where, 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 where he was under trial. And, and what's going on there right outside of that court of Caiaphas? The Bible tells us, then and here, the only two places, that there was a coal-burning fire. I love Jesus' attention to detail because it was around a coal-burning fire that Peter fell flat on his face and denied Jesus three times. That was the epitome of, of the disgrace of turning his back on Jesus, right? And then on the beach, Jesus shows up on the Sea of Galilee shore and cooks breakfast for Peter on what? A charcoal fire. The stench of betrayal turns into the sweet aroma of grace. And on a Galilean beach, Peter has just eaten this breakfast cooked by Jesus over this charcoal fire. The very same word, anthrakion, in this account and in the account of the betrayal. Peter is restored, and Jesus does it around the very thing of where he had fallen. Peter, the most conspicuous failure among the first disciples, is now forgiven. He is restored to continue the work of Jesus. Peter, for as long as he lived, never forgot the link between the dark night of denials and this bright morning of grace, both around a charcoal fire. Inviting us to leave the net of guilt, the net of I'm not good enough, the net of shame, the net of unforgiveness. Some of us, although we can't or haven't verbally assented to that reality, walk through life feeling like we're just not good enough, we're not worthy enough, we've done something that disqualifies us, etc. And what Jesus says is to Peter here, leave that net, my son, for I am restoring you to feed my sheep. What an incredible picture of God's scandalous grace engaging every small detail in the process. And then the passage ends, and I'm not going to read it, but it's this last net. One more thing happens because as Peter is walking with Jesus, he turns around and he sees John behind him, and he says, what about him? He looks behind him and he says, What about him? It seems like he still doesn't get something yet. He looks back at John, asking Jesus if John will die also. And Jesus tells him, it is none of his business what happens to John. And he tells Peter, you simply follow me. Following Jesus demands our full attention. And we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. The minute we start making comparisons, we lose our focused obedience on Jesus' words and his life. When we attempt to get our models of ministry from the celebrities of our culture, We obscure the uniqueness of the gospel life and the vocational shape of how God has called you uniquely to occupy your own life. When you attempt to model your models of ministry or your spirituality after celebrities or politicians or athletes or whoever you consider the other, your eyes get off of Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And there's a need to let go of the nets of comparison the nets of rivalry, the nets of looking over my shoulder to look at someone else. That's what Peter, that's what Peter's being invited to. Those are the nets that Jesus makes so clear to him to let go of. And I found this in my journal years ago, and I'll, I'll conclude with this. As it brings us to our summary, thinking about this passage, I wrote, I ask myself, what kind of kingdom have I been trying to build through devotion to the nets that I daily put my hands to? I wonder what the nets represent for me in my own life. How many of the seemingly altruistic decisions that I make each day are really motivated by the specific fish I hope to catch when casting my nets into the waters of self-doubt? Is the catch I seek really the affirmation of others to feed my malnourished soul? I am shocked by how often I am driven to cast nets into the sea of rivalry and comparison with others. I tend these nets amidst waves of misplaced desire that break violently on my companions' shores. Am I willing to leave those nets behind, whatever security they seem to provide, and instead follow Jesus into the deeper unknown waters of Christ-like desire? For some of this, for some of us, this could mean turning our back on what we have spent a good portion of our life fishing for. So three stories about Peter. Back home in Galilee. Think of your Galilee today. The Fort Myers Galilee. Or whatever township or neighborhood you live in. Whatever school you attend. Wherever you work. There is a Galilee call to you. To leave the nets that would distract you from the power of how God wants to flow His grace through you. Into the lives of those around you. That's how a church becomes missional when it's people live into leaving their nets and become attentive to that which is around them. Let go of self-doubt and discouragement and and, and, and the kind of things that would create lies about yourself to yourself and stop comparing and, 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 and comparing yourself to others, leaving those nets behind. As John concludes his gospel, He wants to make sure that we understand how this glorious resurrection life gets lived out on the street by people like us, mechanics and bakers, businessmen and businesswomen, homemakers, as well as pastors, teachers, and missionaries. We don't wait until we die to experience and participate in the resurrection life. And we start in our own neighborhoods, our own schools, our own places of work, our own Galilies with the people that we have grown up with and spend each day with. Secondly, the second story involves Peter's change of identity from a fisherman denying Jesus in the courtyard of Caiaphas to a replacement identity of shepherd conferred by Jesus himself while eating breakfast around a charcoal fire on a Galilean beach. And then thirdly, the third story involves Jesus' insistence that Peter's place in the kingdom is to maintain his self-awareness on Jesus as a follower of Jesus, not being preoccupied of how to be a leader. The Christian life doesn't consist of achieving great things for God, but in allowing Jesus to use our inadequacies and our failures to rehabilitate us to a life experienced as grace and love and obedience. Peter's recovered focus on following Jesus to a sacrificial death undistracted by what others might or might not be doing under Jesus' emphatic follow me is basic for each of us. And the Christian life is not about leadership as much as it is about followership. Not about becoming more and more, but by living into the gift of less and less. We can only live a life of mission in Galilee by joining Peter in his embrace of the local and the ordinary by accepting the continuous renovating forgiveness of Jesus in our own lives, and then by following Jesus without looking over our shoulders at anyone else. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for this call to Galilee. Thank you for the Galilee where we live as members of relevant community. Help us in the Galilee's of our daily lives to be relevant as followers of you, leaving aside the nets that would discourage and distract us and to live into the fullness of the vocational calling that you've granted to us, the calling of grace. Thank you. and Help us to live in the shape of our own lives in the way that you call us to follow you, to love you, to express your grace as those loved as Graciela told Mitchell. <laughs> Each person in this room is undeniably loved by you, so much so that you died on a cross to save them from their sins. And yet, then, because of that reality, you have gifted them with the passion and the zeal to live into the Galilee's of their everyday life as forgiven, restored, and freed people of God. Because of your resurrection, we live as your resurrected people. And I pray for that anointing on Relevance Community. I pray for that calling on this church as individuals, as families, and as a congregation. That you would be glorified. You would be moved and they would understand the fullness of your calling of grace upon them. In your name.